I can't just say you, you really should stand up here and see how many people are in our building this morning. Um, it's, it's fantastic. I know over the past couple of weeks we've had a lot of people turn up and visit our church and, um, and I thank you for that. But it's great to stand here and see so many people in our building. And to those that are watching online, I trust that you are encouraged as well. Well, today we are entering into the third chapter of Ruth. Yes, we're getting there. We're getting there. The writer is continuing his story of redemption and the love story between Boaz and Ruth is just starting to develop. We finished last week with Ruth informing Naomi of the additional blessings which she was handed to by Boaz while working in his field. He had shown grace to Ruth and abundantly fulfilled the law of gleaning and went above and beyond. I called last week's sermon The Blessings of Work. That's because Ruth was out there working and she, in her work, was a blessing to Naomi. Boaz was out there working as well and he, in his work, was a blessing to both of them. Naomi informs Ruth that this person that had blessed her so much is a close relative. So maybe, just maybe, Boaz would continue this passion of love and abundance and grace and fulfil another law, not just the law of gleaning, the law of kingsman redeemer. You can see Naomi's mind starts to take shape and starts to really come to the forefront. Naomi is the one that now takes the leads and puts a plan in action to see if this can actually take place. A plan she comes up with is directed towards securing a place of rest for Ruth in the house of her own husband. This is the basis of these five verses. This is where she's coming from. That's why I've entitled today's sermon, Oh, What a Plan. As I said, we saw in the previous chapter, it was Ruth who was working hard and initiating the help. Well, now we see it is the opposite. Now we see it is Naomi is the one. As we get to chapter three, the hope she saw goes from her eyes to her heart. We now see it's Naomi initiating the help and care. She now has a purpose. She now is the one working. Now, is there, there is some confusion to the time difference between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Some translations start with the word, then Naomi said. So you would assume it's just a continuation from the conversation that Ruth and Naomi are having from the end of chapter two. But that conversation took place on the end of the first day of Ruth's gleaning when she returned home from the field of Boaz. But the author is clear at the end of chapter two. And he says, Ruth continued to glean in the field into the end of harvest. As I said, that time would have been about three months. And so chapter three begins sometime after that. So then sometime after this, we're not sure how long, we begin with Naomi talking to Ruth. And she says, I must find a home for you where you will live and where you will be provided for. Her words here, though given as a statement or a question, aren't a question. They're actually a statement. In essence, what she's saying is this. My daughter, I shall seek rest for you that it may be well with you. The word rest or home in Hebrew that is emphasised here implies a state of rest, a state of contentment. It was to be in a place of protection, to be in a place of honour, of security, one that could not be violated. 
the word actually carries the idea of that of being able to seek a marriage. In this scenario, this word speaks of the security and tranquility that a woman in Israel longed for. Because to find security, honour, protection and contentment in the home of a loving husband was truly a blessing. That's, that's Naomi's starting point. That's why her mind is working overtime. Since their journey into Moab and since their return to Bethlehem, it was this lack of security, honour and protection and contentment in the home of a loving husband that was missing. It was haunting them both. Now, she would have seen Ruth go out to work over the past few months and she would have seen how Boaz continued to bless her and show her grace. But she also would have seen something else that prompted this opening statement. Even though Naomi had seen the grace Boaz showed to Ruth daily, it seems at the same time she saw Ruth had hard times. It seems that Ruth at some time must have been disheartened. Perhaps Ruth may have been a lady who at times was so sad in her heart that she even mentioned it to Naomi. Maybe at times she was wondering where her life was leading her and will she ever find a husband. Sure, Boaz had found, shown an interest in Ruth, and being helpful towards her, but at the same time, maybe she was desiring a husband to raise up the names of her dead husband. Maybe just like most women in Israel at the time, she longed to be in that place of protection, security and honour in the home of a loving husband. Anyway, we're not sure if Naomi heard comments like this from Ruth, but we can be sure of this. By her stating, I must find a home rest for you where you'll be provided for, this is exactly what Naomi is wanting. She's wanting to find a loving husband for her that she can go and live with, that he can protect her and honour her. She knows or she has perceived some problem or emptiness in Ruth. As the parent in this society and within the times of this culture, it is her duty and her responsibility to arrange a marriage for the child. She is wanting Ruth to find this rest by finding a husband. To be a wife who is secure and at rest is assumed to be a good thing. And so the words that it may be well with you convey, convey that idea. She intends for Ruth to be granted a place of rest in a marriage which would be for her comfort, contentment and peace. So that for the benefit of her beloved Ruth, she decides it's time to take measures into her own hands. She's about to take action and bring this security and rest to Ruth. This doesn't mean Naomi was tired of Ruth living with her. It simply means that she was concerned about what was happening with Ruth and she was concerned about Ruth's future. Naomi explains a plan that she comes up with that will allow Ruth to secure a good future for herself by securing a husband. What is probably very happy news for Ruth, Naomi mentions that this man, Boaz, is a close relative. As we saw last week, he was one of the family guardian redeemers. And Naomi is hoping to put things in place for this to take place. As we've learned early in this series, in the law of Moses, there was a provision of the law that stated if a man died without having a son, his brother is to go to the woman and raise up a child in the dead brother's name. This law was set up for the right of the surviving widow. It is a law that she can demand from her brother-in-law. There was a provision in this law that stated if the man brother-in-law didn't fulfil this request, he's to be marked and openly publicly shamed. 
In a cultural sense, the law showed the importance of persevering, uh, preserving the family name. Now, you may say, hang on, Boaz isn't the brother-in-law. Nowhere does it say he's the brother-in-law. So how does this law apply here? Well, although the law doesn't specifically mention details of a close relative um, other than a brother-in-law fulfilling the rights, scholars tell us the fact that the book of Ruth calls Boaz and shows Boaz as kinsman redeemer, we can assume it was accepted custom in Israel at the time the law changed or was added to to include a close relative, not just a brother-in-law. And good news, Boaz is such a close relative to fulfil the law. But this knowledge doesn't imply any obligation on him. He's not required to act first. The first steps towards such a marriage doesn't belong with Boaz. The rights of the marriage belongs to the possessor of the law. Who owned the law? The widow. An example of this is the law we've been looking at at gleaning. Boaz owned a field and it was his obligation. He had to follow the law and let people glean in his field. He could not forbid them for gleaning. But he was, no under, he was under no obligation in the law to go out and door knock on the poor. He didn't have to go out and seek who can come and glean in his field. He just had to provide the field and it was up to them to come. The same is true for this law. It was Ruth who possessed the right of the near relative redeemer to seek the marriage. But this meant she had to be the one to initiate the law provided. In Naomi's words, she implies that she has the right to recommend this cause of action. So she will now convey to Ruth because he is a close relative. Even though he's older, he has demonstrated exceptional kindness to her and she is probably more attached to him than any other man that she'd ever met. So she began to put things in motion. She wants Ruth to marry Boaz and then all of them can live happily ever after. Now, some of you may say, man, what an interfering mother-in-law. <laughs> or perhaps she's the world's first matchmaker. Either way, I want to tell you this, she was in the right. She was doing the right thing. In that day, as I said, it was the parents who arranged the marriages. So Naomi was not out of place in what she was about to do. If the marriage proposal works, it would not only assure that Ruth finds this rest, but any children born in that marriage would be raised up in the seed of Naomi's dead son and preserve the family name. Having noted that, she was looking for a husband for Ruth and the fact that Boaz was the one who could do this, she now goes further in her matchmaking plans. She says, oh boy, I happen to know where he will be tonight. He will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. It was there the grain that was taken at the end of each day. It would have been covered top, it would have had a top on the top, covered the top to keep the rain off, but the sides were open. The floor of a fleshing floor would be mixed with chalk to keep both the weeds out and from coming up and cracking, but the ground would be perfectly fat. At a fleshing floor was a place of labour and industry. It was a place where the Lord of the harvest participated alongside with his workers in sifting and examining the grain. Then he would lay down by his large heap of grain and sleep there for the night, feeling very satisfied and contented. Naomi knew 
that Boaz would be using the threshing floor that night and staying there to guard his grain. So she instructed Ruth to prepare herself to meet him. She told Ruth to do three things to present herself to Boaz. The first thing was she to do was she was to wash herself. Now, for many, the fact that Naomi told Ruth to bath and clean herself may not mean much. But in the east, with the heat and the dust, frequent washing was necessary, but water was not always plentiful. But for the Jews, the law of Moses required ceremonial washing. That is for special events taking place. You must have a bath. So in a way, Naomi is telling Ruth to bath herself was actually telling her to act like a bride preparing for a wedding. The next thing she had to do was anoint herself. Eastern people used fragment oils to protect and heal their bodies and to make themselves pleasant to others. A bride would especially take care to wear a fragment perfume that would make her nice to be near. So anointing has to do with the aroma that she's going to give out. And how important is this? I mean, none of us want to be around people who smell. The third thing she says is change your clothes. In scripture, clothing carries a spiritual meaning. Even right from the beginning, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, they clothed themselves to try and cover their shame. The Jewish priests wore special garments that no one else was permitted to wear. Now we are told that Ruth are to change her clothes. Chances are the only clothes she's ever been wearing so far are poor widow's clothes. Since the death of her husband, she probably didn't have a large wardrobe. Ruth probably worn widow's garments. Now Naomi's message to Ruth is this. Take off those widow's sorrowing garments. Dress for a special occasion. Get dressed for a wedding. So since the first time since the death of her husband, the poor widow clothes are gone, she's now prepared and ready to present herself in the most beautiful and radiant way. A friend of mine used to say there are three important things in life, looking good, feeling good and smelling good. Ruth had all three. Her face and her hair would be shiny from the bath, her clothes would be dashing and because of the handful of oil that she's anointed herself with, she would have smelt wonderful. We can only but imagine how naturally lovely this would have been. I mean, if she caught the eyes of Boaz when she was hot and sweaty, wearing widow's clothes, working in his field, imagine the reaction tonight. So after Ruth has made all the necessary aspects to prepare herself, Naomi directs Ruth to the threshing floor. A normal day on the farm, as I said, would involve harvesting and bringing in the sheaves. Then the day workers would have a meal together, then head home. The owner of the field would stay at the threshing floor to guard the grain. So going to the threshing floor at night meant that this was an exceptional opportunity for Ruth to meet him outside the city and away from where he lived. But more importantly, he would be alone. Now that her physical preparations are all taken care of, Naomi spells out her plan, taking care not to reveal herself to Boaz until he'd finished eating and drinking. What's that about? Why would she say that? Well, bluntly, at such a time, he would be in very good spirits. Because of the situation, after an excellent day of harvesting, satisfied with the day behind him, having a full stomach and happy from, from some wine, he would be in a good mood. He would lay among the grain, content with the labour of his hands. 
The next part of the plan involves Ruth paying special attention to where he lays down. It was only when she determined where he ended on that floor that she was to go in and make her attentions known because this would make for the perfect moment and place for Ruth to exercise the right of redemption. Now, just on a side note, some have asked or brought the idea, if Ruth only coming to Boaz in the dark of night when he's half awake, why bother with all the preparations? Why bother with the bathing, anointing and wearing her best clothes? I mean, if he's really feeling really good, half asleep and drunk, why put so much time and effort into it? And I guess you could say that's a legitimate question. Well, here's what answer most scholars give. As the bearer of the right to request redemption from Boaz, she could have quite easily approached him publicly. But remember, Boaz is not the closest relative to Ruth. As we'll see next week, there is one that is closer. So if Ruth were to go publicly and claim her right to Boaz by law, he could quite just as publicly say that he didn't have to follow it to the letter of the law because there was one closer. We must remember that Ruth is also a foreigner and marrying foreigners was not something that was typically first on the list to do for righteous Israelites, especially women that came from Moab. It was, after all, the Moabite women who lured Israel's men into sexual immorality. Boaz had meticulously cared for Ruth and had revealed his intentions to her through his actions. But it was her right of redemption, not his. It was her that had to come the way she did. In offering herself to the one who has the right to redeem, she's taking advantage of the very law that the society had in place. The approach recommended by Naomi is not just one of legal priority. It is the one that is designed to tug at his heartstrings as well and his human urges. By doing all the preparation, she is following the intent of the law but mixing it with a pleasing, humble manner. That's why they believe Naomi did it this way. Naomi knew that both parties were in favour of it and she simply followed the cultural norms in order for their hearts to be united as one. So she's following the letter of the law but doing it in such a way of hoping to receive a more favourable outcome. Now we get to the interesting part. Now comes the critical part of instructions. She says, When Boaz lays down to go to sleep, Ruth is instructed to uncover his feet and lay down with him. At the end of the working day, Boaz would be alone to watch his grain. It would be dark. At this time, and only this time, was she to go in, uncover his feet, and lay down with him. Some scholars take great offence to this particular instructions. They find blame in both Naomi and Ruth for being so unwise and acting in such an unbiblical manner. Others even go as far as to say that this instruction by Naomi to go and uncover his feet and lie with him implies to have a sexual encounter with him. Some parallel this situation with Lot's daughter who got him drunk and lured him to having sex with her. I must admit, when I was younger and I first read these verses, I thought it was sexual. Well, sadly, this is what happens when we insert our own cultural norms into someone else's cultural setting. To interpret a sexual union here in this verse is to read far too much into the text than it was ever intended for by the author. This was not how this gesture was understood in that day. In the culture of the day, this act was seen and understood as an act of total submission. 
There is nothing improper or vulgar that can be deducted from this passage. Unlike the sexual encounter with Lot, the plan presented by Naomi involved no such desire. Ruth the Moabitess is indeed a descendant from Lot, but the author is careful to present her in the exact opposite way. That's why when we take the book as a whole, the context argues strongly against a sexual interpretation. This book unfailingly failingly presents Naomi, Ruth and Boaz as people of the highest integrity all throughout the whole book. It presents Boaz as a pillar of the community, a solid citizen. Even more than that, he has the high quality. So men like that, yeah, they can face temptation. But when such a man falls for a temperess, he would hardly ever marry her. A temperess would more likely be repelled by Boaz than attract him. It is impossible to imagine Boaz wanting to marry such a woman. Ruth needs to signal to Boaz that she's available, but she needs to take it no further. It's a fine line to walk this night. And Naomi shows great confidence in Ruth and suggests that she walks it. At the barley freshing floor under the veil of night with the smell of fertility in the air, some may have surrendered to physical desires, but not Boaz and Ruth. To uncover and lie at his feet literally is the places of his feet. This reference was given to a way in which a servant may sleep in the same room as their master. In that day, that was understood to be the role of a servant, to lay at their master's feet and be ready for any command the master may give. Being at the master's feet was a lonely position, but it represented submission. Boaz would probably be sleeping in his clothes, but he would have had a cover over his feet to keep his feet warm at night. Once Ruth lifted this cover, she could lay next to his feet and cover herself. Doing this was a sign of submission. Or another way is, Ruth is putting herself in the position of a petitioner. She's signifying her desires to him to submit to him and marry him. Now, we don't know whether this was a widely practised custom or not when it comes to marriage. Most scholars say that the fact that this is only the time that it's mentioned in scriptures tells us that it probably wasn't a common practice. So why did Naomi suggest it be done this way? We don't know. Maybe the ordinary methods of approach that I mentioned before created more difficulties. But for sure, if Boaz is her kinsman redeemer, then she had the right to expect him to marry her and raise up a family to maintain the family name. So she could have approached Boaz in a different way to claim the right of marriage. But Naomi wisely counselled Ruth not to come that way. Don't come as a victim demanding your rights. Come as a servant. In this plan, she was to come to him in a total humble and submissive way. She was to enter the freshing floor as a humble servant, come in a way of trusting the goodness of her kingsman redeemer. In acting this way towards Boaz, her message is this, I respect you, I trust you, and I put my future in your hands. With her offer made, she said, Boaz will in turn work out the finer parts where to go to from here. And so she was instructed, do whatever he says. Because Naomi knew Boaz's heart was sympathetic towards Ruth, we can know from this statement Naomi had no fear that Boaz would act in an irresponsible manner. Whatever he did, his actions and manner would be appropriately followed up towards Ruth. She believed it. That's why she said, do whatever he says. 
She knew that this proposal or plan had a very strong chance of having a positive outcome. Naomi had the faith to believe that she would soon be going to a wedding. Naomi has certainly presented a rather risky venture though, one that had the potential and fought with danger. Should Boaz interpret roof actions in a manner that wasn't intended? Think about the scenario for a moment. Naomi is suggesting that Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite, wait in hiding at night in the property of Boaz. Then after he finally lies down and falls asleep, she's to go to him, uncover his feet, lie down with him and then do whatever he says. This is quite a bold move. Imagine being in Ruth's shoes and hearing that. Imagine Naomi telling you to do that. What would you say to her? Well, what's Ruth's response? I will do everything you tell me. There was no questioning of Naomi's plans on behalf of Ruth. There was only a simple response of obedience. So that's the first five verses of chapter three. Ruth at Naomi's great plan. But what can we learn? How does this affect us today? Well, some say the great thing we learn is this. How lucky are we that we don't have to do all that stuff that Ruth did when we approach God? Well, it may surprise you, but when I think of what does this say to us today, we need to do exactly the same things in our approach in coming to God as what Ruth did. What did she do? The first thing she did was cleanse herself. We need to cleanse ourselves before we come into the presence of God. If you want to enter into a deeper relationship with our Lord, we must cleanse ourselves. Now, just before you jump on the stage and try and shut me up because you think I'm preaching a heresy, I don't believe I am. Now, you may say, hang on, Garth, cleanse ourselves. That is a heresy. Aren't we already cleansed and cleared by the blood of Jesus? And isn't it true that there is nothing else that we can do? Yes, 100%. But what may surprise you is we still have verses that say we need to cleanse ourselves. In the Old Testament, if a priest comes into God's presence defiled, not doing the ceremonial cleaning, he was in danger of death. The Jewish people were conscious of the need to cleanse themselves before they came and worshipped God. That's why we read in Isaiah, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong. Now you may say, yeah. Of course it says that. That's the Old Testament. But even today, don't we as Christians still go and do things like that? Don't we just go sometimes and rush into God's presence without acknowledging or cleansing ourselves of our sins before God? I know I do. But thankfully today, I know when I do this, I'm not going to die. But I can tell you this. When I do that, I'm robbing myself of God's blessings. We spoke about this point Thursday night at Bible study. Whenever we sin, whenever we disobey God, whenever we draw away, we must pray the prayer of Psalm 51, 2 and 7. Wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. When we seek forgiveness, gosh, God washes the record clean. That's the promise of 1 John 9. But you know what? We have another verse about cleaning and it's found from Paul in 2 Corinthians 7. Because we have these great promises of our salvation, because we have had our sins forgiven, because everything has taken place, 
because we have that, God asks us to find and clean out those things that get in the way of our relationship with him. The verse is 2 Corinthians 7.1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or our spirit and let us work towards complete purity before we, because we fear God. If you want to enter into a deeper relationship with our Lord, we must cleanse ourselves. God will not do that part for us. We must do it ourselves. Only we can put out of our lives those things that defile us. What things are they? Well, let me ask you, pray about it. Ask God to reveal them to you. Maybe you have to clean out some of the books on your library. Maybe it's a movie collection. Maybe it's a music collection. I don't know what it is for you, but I know what it is for me. Yes, it's hard, but it's what we are called to do. Now, I know this isn't a nice part of the sermon, but if you want a deep personal relationship with God, then cleansing ourselves or separating ourselves from whatever defiles us or grieves our Father in heaven holds just as much true as all those nice passages about grace. You know, Ruth or any bride for that matter could just turn up on their wedding day just as they are. I mean, they're already loved. They are already loved by the person they're marrying. If they turned up in jeans, they would still be married and the husband would still love her. But none of them do it. They cleanse themselves so nothing will spoil their day. When we cleanse ourselves, we get rid of the things that get in the way between us and God. That's how our relationship grows. What else did she do? We are to anoint ourselves. Just as Ruth anointed herself, so we are to anoint ourselves. With what? Oil. Now, what on earth am I talking about? If you remember, I said in the Old Testament, um, anointing meant putting on oil. It was all to do with the fragrance. Well, the New Testament speaks about the anointing of oil for a fragrance, but when the New Testament speaks of this, it speaks of one thing, the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When Jesus lived on this earth, he proclaimed his life and his work was done through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, 18 and 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recover the sight of the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. If the spotless Son of God needed to be anointed by the Spirit's power, how much more do we? Sadly, though, I know for me, I sometimes don't rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I rely on the power of Garth. So many times I will go out and try and do something on the power of Garth. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. We need to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. All believers have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit and therefore we ought to be a fragrance of Jesus Christ. When we live in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and working, Christ works in our lives. When we are living in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the more we are like Jesus in character and conduct. That's the fragrant of the Holy Spirit. That's what comes out of us. When we live in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the aroma we give is Jesus. As Christians and as a church, the more we reflect Jesus, the more we please our Father. And the more we please him, the more he can bless us and use us for his glory. No wonder being anointed is so important. 
change our clothes. Often in Scripture, what happens to us at, at, at salvation and living as a Christian is pictured as a change of clothes. The Bible pictures becoming from a non-Christian to a Christian as taking off grave clothes of your old life and putting on grace clothes, your new life. We can't come into God's presence in our own righteousness. Even if we think we've lived a pretty good life and done many good things, we can't count on them. Because as we read in Isaiah, all good deeds are nothing but filthy rags. We can't come wearing filthy rags and grave clothes. We need our clothes changed. And the good news is the Lord has done it. The Apostle Paul summed it up perfectly when he said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. We can only come into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Before you were Christian, you were wearing filthy garments. Since Christ came in, your filthy garments are gone. He now regards you as wearing Christ's pure garments. Before God, you are clothed in righteousness of Christ. The Lord has forgiven you, he's clothed you, and he's accepted you. He had to shed his blood to do it, but we now wear the grace clothes of him. We need to change our clothes. And finally... We promise to obey. Ruth was not only a hearer of the word, she was a doer. Even with what was laid out before her, as crazy as it may seem, she said, all that you've said to me, I will do. Ruth is going to reap the rewards because she listened to Naomi's instructions and she will go on and do them. Now, she had every right to say no. She could have quite easily said, whoa, chicky, this is way too serious. Let me paint a silly picture for you. Suppose Ruth did say that to Naomi. Suppose Ruth said, yeah, that's all well and good, but I've had a very long day and I'm just going to stay home tonight. Then she never marries and her life goes downhill. And then she spends time complaining to Naomi again about her plot. Silly, I know. But you know what? We as Christians sometimes do exactly the same. Sometimes we complain about our walk with God or where our life is heading. But know this, our willingness to obey the Lord Jesus Christ is the secret of knowing what he wants us to do and being blessed in it when we do it. The Old Testament priests knew how to approach God because he gave them clear instructions in the law. New Testament Christians know how to approach God because in the word he told us what is required. Whether in private communion with the Lord or in public worship, we have no right to alter the principles that God has laid down for us to follow. Do you know, I remember my time in Cambodia. A friend of mine blessed me and Michelle and uh, paid for us to go and visit some friends of ours who are missionaries there. And we went to the king's palace. And when you go to the king's palace, you have to wear certain types of clothes. You have to have your shoulders covered. You have to have, um, you can't wear shorts. You've got to wear long pants. And you know, some people got there and being 40 degree days, they had tank tops on or they had shorts on and the guards were stopping them. And they said, people said, oh, that's stupid rule. Look, I come from Australia. We wear singlets all the time. I can wear shorts and thongs and all this and that. Have a guess how many got into the palace? None. Not one. If you wanted to see the palace, you had to conform to their rules. Well, let me tell you this. We're exactly the same. As God's own children, if we want to have fellowship with him, we must conform to the rules. 
What rules? Obey what he says. When we obey, we have fellowship with God and we know his plan and we know his will. John 7, 16 and 17 says this. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from he who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. A literal translation of that is this. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he shall know the teachings of God. Sadly, one thing I think living in a consumerist society is we get what we want when we want it. And if we don't, then we go somewhere else that gives it. Knowing and obeying the will of God or living in a deep relationship with God is not like a supermarket where you can go and pick and choose what you want. God expects us to accept that all his plans for us. He expects us to obey him completely. Coming to God with a hidden agenda or with hidden reservations in our heart will only lead to grieving the spirit and to missing God's best. And I'm sure none of us want that. When Ruth prepared herself, it wasn't just, here I am, sweetheart. She washed, she anointed, she changed clothes and she obeyed. No wonder God blessed her. What about you? Like Ruth, are you willing to submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to walk before him in spirit and in righteousness to learn how we can and how we tend to his word? In doing this, you will be blessed. So that ends our segment for today. That ends the first five verses of chapter three. I'm not sure if you can remember the very first time you read the book of Ruth, but I can. It was doing one of those daily devotional books. And I remember these five verses were reading for one of the days. And I couldn't believe it stopped at verse five. I felt left, I felt like I was left hanging. I felt like I just watched a TV show and you get to that crucial point and those horrible words come up on the screen to be continued. This passage closes yet again with great suspense and drama. It leaves us on the edge of our seats, wondering what will happen when Ruth makes her way to the threshing floor. Will she obey the instructions of Naomi has given her to the letter of the law? What will be the reaction of Boaz to this clean, perfume, well-dressed, beautiful, smelling woman lying at his feet in the dark? We are left with a sense of hope that something good will come out of this plan. Well, that's exactly what we will see next week. Yes, God has given us this wonderful treasure in hopes that we will daily seek his face and fellowship with him through our Lord Jesus Christ, living his blessings and showered with his grace. Thank you, O God, for all you've done for us. Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. May his glorious name be praised forever.